because you got a felony, don't discriminate against me. I'm still I'm not no bad dude. I just did some bad things, but I'm no bad dude. And it's like, why do you have to constantly keep trying to convince somebody to say, okay, can I just become a productive member of society? Can you give me another chance? I don't know, no man. But I mean, if once they learn your past, you know, ooh, he's dangerous, you know. He's been to prison. The groups that I've come up with say that it essentially takes two days to heal up from every single day that you are in prison. And so if we think of it like that, um, then somebody who's been in a year, it's going to take them at least two years to transition back into life on the outside. 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 Most of us don't think about what it's like to come back from prison. I'm Molly Mulroy, and this is Outside. I've said that I won't talk about anyone's specific crimes, and I won't. The details are not important. What I do want to talk about, though, is sex offenses. Yes, um, the, the offense with which I was incarcerated was a sex offense. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, for the most part, um, for people who, who already know me, um, it's not a problem. And um, for people who don't know me um, if they don't already know uh, what I was incarcerated for um, and they, they get to know the person who I am um, most of the time it's not a problem mm. um, you know because I, mean, I, I feel like I'm you know uh, other than you know the fact that I was incarcerated um, you know, for that offense you know I'm I'm a pretty nice person, you know, I'm pretty smart, you know, and I'm, I'm not, um, you know, a lot of times people have uh, an, a vision or um, a picture of what somebody who has been incarcerated is supposed to look like, how they're supposed to act, um, and even as far as being, you know, somebody who's a sex offender, how they're, you know, supposed to look or act, or, um, and so I, I try to, you know, break down those preconceived notions by, you know, just being successful and just mm -hmm. being a good person and trying to, to help people, you know, uh, driving to New Orleans to help people with their college projects, you know, <laughs> things like that. Nelson is probably right. Most of us don't think of sex offenders as smart and well-dressed like Nelson. We probably think of a man in a dark alley with a trench coat, or maybe, these days, a college athlete who gets away with it. Sex offenses can range anywhere from child molestation and rape to teenagers sending naked pictures of themselves to public urination. But all of these are listed on sex offender registries together. To be fair, some registries classify the offenses, marking offenses against children in one color and adult rape offenses in another. But where did we come up with these registries in the first place? 
1993, a U.S. representative from Minnesota came forward with the Jacob Wetterling Act, which required law enforcement to verify addresses of sex offenders annually and maintain private registries of these offenders. The act was named after a Minnesota boy who was kidnapped, molested, and murdered in 1989. At that point, there was no centralized directory for previous child molestation cases, even if police forces did want to check it. Before the act was passed as part of the 1994 crime bill, however, the parents of Megan Kanka, another girl who was raped and murdered a few years after Jacob, requested that law enforcement be allowed to notify the community when an offender is released. Two years later, Megan's law was passed, requiring community notification. You know, we as a nation have a history of knee-jerk responses to problems that result in legislation that will eventually, in many cases, have unintended consequences. People in America are just like, no, you cannot rape women. No, you cannot rape children. And the, and the, um, and the desire for a swift and sure punishment for that as a deterrent, a general deterrent, is pretty overwhelming, right? Life sentence for rape. However, the sex offender registry laws, uh, many of them, the genesis was young kids being killed and murdered and a sense in the community as expressed in legislation that, well, we need to know who these people are if they're going to be anywhere around us. Might not have been a bad idea, right? And the question of uh, labeling is certainly out there. But some of the unintended consequences we see are that people... That's Renal Surpass again the former superintendent of the NOPD. And he's got a point. There is some guttural reaction in us when it comes to sex crimes that may not come when we think about arson or theft, sometimes even murder. So why is that? Is it because rape and sexual assault take away something more than theft or arson? More than just a monetary value? But murder does that too. Is it because rape victims have to live with the memories of the crime for the rest of their lives? For me personally, maybe it's because the statistics are alarmingly higher that I, as a woman, and particularly as a female college student, could be a victim of rape or sexual assault. Much higher than a victim of arson or murder. Or maybe it's because crimes like rape are power plays, as opposed to a crime of passion or desperation. It's hard to say. But these types of feelings and beliefs widespread across the U.S. according to various studies conducted in Florida and Tennessee, contradict all types of empirical research about who is committing these crimes, how often, and how often they commit these crimes after being incarcerated. You know, the, the, the typical or the best example is an 18-year-old boy having sex with a 15-year-old girl, and that's a, it's a sex offense by statute, and he or she's convicted of that, that 18-year-old boy could possibly be a sex offender depending on the state he's in for the rest of his life. I don't think that's what they meant when they were thinking about the young girls that were killed. Sort of in conjunction with those Romeo and Juliet type relationships, many of the people who end up registering as sex offenders are minors. Kids can be convicted of sex crimes for inappropriate touching or pulling down another kid's pants on the playground. And Dr. Elizabeth Letourneau and her research team at the Moore Center for the Prevention of Child Sexual Abuse at Johns Hopkins, has found that more than 95% of kids convicted of sex offenses do not commit these types of offenses ever again. In 2006, Patty Wetterling, the mother of the boy who went missing in 1989, began to question some of these unintended consequences herself. She visited an Alabama treatment center for convicted sex offenders where she walked in and saw, quote, all these kids 
wearing blue jeans and blue work shirts, end quote. And she soon began to even go visit sex offenders in prison to understand their plight. You can hear more about Patty and her family's story in APM Reports podcast, In the Dark. Another result of these types of laws is a sort of forced homelessness. When sex offenders return from prison, they're often also subjected to certain residency laws that dictate where they can and cannot live. Not too close to a school, not too close to a playground, etc. And often this leaves very few options, sending those who come home to live on the streets or in low-income neighborhoods that might not be able to protect themselves as well if someone did decide to reoffend. During our interviews, I've asked Nelson about his personal experiences with these types of laws. I can say uh, honestly um, that for me, um, even initially uh, with the offense, um, it wasn't that much of um, it, it may it may have been more like what happened um, rather than um, you know throw them away as far as. Um, the community may have been concerned. But then, later on... I had um, a situation where I uh, tried to uh, check into a hotel and um, they said that I couldn't check into the hotel um, even though it was approved or whatever for me to, you know, uh, be there, so... You know, that's one of the things, um, you know, just trying to understand. I mean, I understood, you know. You know, it's, you know, sometimes it's hard to deal with, you know. um, You know, sometimes you can see the the change in demeanor when you, you know, have business dealings or just being in the store, you know. You know, you're having a conversation with somebody, they're happy, you know, you know, being very cordial. And then you hand them your ID, and then they see sex offender on it, and then their whole, you know, demeanor changes. Right. You know, so, um, you know, dealing with that is, is hard sometimes, but, you know, that's something that you got to deal with. Eric Janis, the former dean of William Mitchell Law School, wrote a book called Failure to Protect, America's Sexual Predator Laws and the Rise of the Preventive State. He argues that predator laws or what he calls laws that target the particularly horrific crimes perpetrated by those we have labeled sexual predators, quote, Predator laws pick out a group of people and place them in a specially degraded legal status that allows the state to treat them in ways that no other person can be treated, end quote. So the long-lasting detrimental effects are very similar to all these other post-incarceration restrictions we've been talking about, but maybe even worse. I recently looked at the registries for sex offenders in my neighborhood, both my current neighborhood and the neighborhood where I grew up. There's so many. So what does that say? That I grew up in bad neighborhoods? That there are lots of bad people nearby? Or maybe it says that we as a society have a problem in the ways that we conceptualize and address sexual violence. Janice writes, quote, Through the work of feminist reformers, We now are aware that sexual violence not only is more common than we once thought, but that it is a part of the fabric of our society, which includes the tacit approval of sexism and violence in everyday life. While we are all repulsed by the rapist murderer, 
tolerant attitudes towards acquaintance rape are common. The sexual predator template encourages us to think that by exiling this monster, we have acquitted our responsibility. Yet as a larger society, we will not have changed the circumstances that allow sexual violence to flourish. End quote. That's a pretty big claim, and a pretty disturbing one at that. Are we really so disinterested in or confused by everyday sexual violence that we have taken this sexual predator type crime that really only represents a minuscule percentage of rapes in the country and blown it up to enormous proportions to obscure what we would prefer not to deal with? That would mean a sort of get out of jail free card to our everyday perpetrators. Like the little guy who just got um, a few months ago, you know, got arrested for raping the girl on the college campus or whatever it was. She's talking about Brock Turner, who I mentioned in a previous episode. He was a Stanford swimmer accused and convicted of sexually assaulting an unconscious young woman. And you know, the statement the judge made is like, well, what happened? You know, I didn't want to ruin his college experience. So for me, like that really pissed me off because I was a first time offender. I had never been in trouble. I was 19, I was in the military. Um, I had a full scholarship to Xavier, physics, engineering. So like, what about my college experience? You know, and what about her college experience? So for me, it just speaks to how society views women as a whole and what's important and what's not important, you know. Professor Beth Ritchie has done a lot of research on this topic, particularly as it pertains to black women. For her book, Arrested Justice, Black Women, Violence in America's Prison Nation, Ritchie writes, quote, Although direct physical assaults and sexual abuse are often studied separately, evidence suggests a strong connection between these two forms of violence against women in the context of intimate relationships. For example, between 57% and 63% of rapes involve a person the victim knew well and saw frequently in her daily life. End quote. Think about that. Well over half of the rapes in this country are by someone the victim knew well. And yet almost every scary movie that comes out shows rapists in a van, kidnapping women or children off the side of the road and taking them to a secret lair, far from her own home. Is our society just ignorant of the facts? Or are we avoiding them, because to face the truth would be too painful? I asked Sarita about her take on it all. As far as the sex offense goes, that's still hard for me to wrap my mind around, especially with adults who take advantage of kids. But on the same token, 90% of these people had been molested or sexually assaulted as kids as well. So my take on it is is that um, I, I believe that everybody can change, be re- rehabilitated. A lot of times, some of the offenses occur because of underlying reasons. So they have this saying with like at-risk youth, and I'm like a firm believer that all youth are at risk if you don't deal with whatever issues, because I was in the traditional... I want to agree with Sarita. Everyone wants to believe that people can be rehabilitated. That's the idea of our criminal justice system to begin with, right? That people will not commit the same crime again, or any crime again. But is that working? The National Criminal Justice Association reported in 2014 that only 15% of sex offenders reoffend and return to prison after five years, whereas the U.S. Sentencing Commission found just last year that about 25% of all federal prisoners are reincarcerated after eight years. And, for comparison's sake, 
The Louisiana Department of Corrections reports that over 40% of Louisiana's incarcerated population returns after just five years. Research from Public Safety Canada found that these recidivism statistics are in fact complicated by this type of sex crime too, which may suggest that the root causes of these crimes differ from offense to offense. Instead of learning from that, though, we treat all the offenses with the same tired punishments, with incarceration, with forced treatment, and with the stigma of being on a registry for the foreseeable future. But there has been no proof that rape cases happen any less often because of the sex offender registries. So what is the purpose of the registries? To let the perpetrators know we're watching them? To make us feel safer? Make us feel better? Make us feel that we are better than them? Or has society just totally gone off the deep end and taken a tool that was meant to keep us safer and used it to harm thousands of people instead? I think that it, it may be a necessary evil. Um, you know, I, I think that um, the, 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 the people who uh, implemented that uh, minds are in uh, the right place. You know, they, they want to keep their community safe. Hmm. Um, you know, so well, I think at some point in time that um, if an individual um, is done that for a significant period of time, uh, he should be able to be relieved of that uh, burden at some point. Uh, I don't know, you know, they have, they have the time set like, uh, uh, generally it's like 25 years or something of that nature. Uh, I think that very well may be too long. Um, that's, I think that's just human nature, you know, mm. um, because, you know, even, even me, you know, I, I'm, I've been in prison like that for 20 years. I, I'm a sex offender, and I, you know, I should be the last person to have preconceived notions about, you know, individuals. But, you know, even even I, you know, sometimes, you know, have preconceived notions about people. Or if I see somebody, you know, with the same thing on their ID card, you know, they might go through my head. You know, so that's why I try to understand, and I, I try not to be. Uh, some judgment of the person being judgment of me. Outside is brought to you by Nisha Call Productions. My editorial advisor is Dr. Laura Murphy, and the theme song was composed by Daniel Bourgeois and Michael Kincannon. Cannon.